my sponsor said something to me this morning that I'm going to put that on my wall. And I was literally saying it when I couldn't get my mic to work. I said it out loud because I was getting super frustrated. And it is don't try harder, resist less. All right, everybody, we are back with another episode of Comeback Stories. So today's guest is Anna David. Anna is a New York Times bestselling author of eight books. She's been published in the New York Times, the LA Times, Vanity Fair, Playboy, Vice, Cosmo, People, Women's Health, BuzzFeed, and many, many more. And she's also been featured in numerous publications, including Forbes, Martha Stewart, Living, Entrepreneur, Women's Health, and, and many others. And she's appeared repeatedly on shows like Good Morning America, The Today Show, Dr. Drew, The CBS Show, The Insider, NBC, CBS, M- MTV, VH1, and E. That is a mouthful. She's all over the place. Anna, welcome. Thank you so much. And we should mention that the only thing that matters is what I do today, which is I'm the founder of a company called Launchpad Publishing, which publishes books for entrepreneurs. And that's what I do. All that sort of in the past. That other Amazing. Stuff. Well, we're, we are uh, grateful to have you on our show. And on this show, Comeback Stories, we get right into your story. So can you just tell us a little bit about what growing up for you was like? Well, I grew up in Marin County, which always connotes some idea of great privilege, which I guess was there. But there were some difficult uh, situations. I come from a very motivated family where everybody went to Harvard and the focus was on making money and going to Harvard. And and I did not get into Harvard and did not make money until I started this company, really. As a New York Times bestseller, I was totally broke. And my dad, as um, he's had a lot of troubles. And so while my parents got divorced, that was like a very minor trauma in this sort of scale of things. And I didn't understand and because all the externals were really good and there was a lot of privilege that there was anything really wrong until I got to college. And, you know, I'd been in therapy since I was 16, but I really got into like what the trauma was about when I was in college. And at the same time, there were just tons of happy times. I'm somebody who I didn't feel a part of in my family, but I very much felt a part of as soon as I got out into the world. So, you know, I really loved school and camp and all the things. Beautiful. Can you talk about um, your public about your sobriety, like Darren and myself are also? Is your sobriety date, I'm assuming it's still November 19, 2000? It is still that, yes. Amazing. That's a solid run you got going. But can you, can you go back a little bit into maybe it's childhood or just something that like an early memory of pain? Sure. I mean, I would say my parents first went into marriage counseling when I was five. And I remember because I remember sitting outside, I would sit in the waiting room and I think that they had like stuffed animals for kids and stuff who were sitting outside. And I remember going, I wish they'd get divorced and thinking even consciously, that was like a really sad thing to think, but that it was a really unhappy family and that we would all be better off if that were the situation. So that's what I remember. That's the first thing that comes to mind. And how would you say that pain or any other pain had kind of led you down the road? And maybe you can take us back a little bit into your run and and what it was like 
in the addiction and how it started and all that fun stuff? Well, I would say, and I'm sure you guys get this, you know, I would say it was like that point was a couple of years long and it was sort of that day in, day out, you know, I knew that cocaine was killing me because it was making me so depressed. It wasn't physically like depleting me. You know, I wasn't going to die from how much I was using, but it was killing me mentally. And yet I couldn't give it up. I couldn't conceive of a world where I would be capable of giving it up. And so, you know, I sort of talk about it like it's being John Malkovich. Do you remember that movie where they're caught between, I think it's the 15th and the 16th floors and it's really painful. And you're just like, I see that. I can't get there. I can't survive here. And one thing that stuck out, Drake, when you asked the question is, I remember being with a couple friends who were not addicts and there was this song, ah, I can't remember who sings it. It's like some total 90s band where the line is basically, I live with this guy. Can you believe he thinks I'm actually alive? And I remember always hearing that and being like, I get that. And I remember being with these friends and that song played and my friend goes, what does that really even mean? And I was like this bridge between how I felt and how I was supposed to be feeling like my college friends felt. And I'm like, that's how I feel. I'm not really alive. I'm walking around this world and I'm not really there. And I don't think I have what it takes to get there. Of course, I was wrong. Hmm. I can relate to that on so many levels. Um, just, you know, it's like, how do I get there? And I just feel so stuck in this place. And one of my favorite quotes, and I've heard you said this on one of your TED Talks, is when the pain of staying the same outweighs the pain of change, you know, then we're ready to do something. Then we're ready to take action. And I want to ask you, what do you think was the biggest thing holding you back from changing into the woman you are today? Was it the, the story you kept telling yourself? Was it certain habits? What would you equate that to? It's such a good question. I guess a lack of courage and a lack of faith because, and you know, what's funny is part of my bottom was I started to get tattoos. Like I'd never had tattoos. And I mean, I got really dumb ones in really visual places. I'm so not a tattoo person. So I got my sign. I think that was on this arm, the shoulder. And then I got the word courage in some dumb script that like I went to the tattoo place. I was like, I don't know, what should I get? And and it's so bizarre and meaningful that that's the word I chose. And I totally lacked courage to change my life at that point. Who knows? This was like 21 years ago. I don't remember how much longer it was before I got sober, but like I lacked it and I found it. And you know, that's really what it takes because, and this is maybe a dumb analogy, but Donnie, uh, Darren, actually, I feel like you're going to get this. Do you ever do those cold showers, cold baths? I feel like that's like a total athlete thing, right? Yeah. So last night I went to one of these places where it's like, you go from sauna to cold plunge, sauna to cold plunge. It's totally awesome. And I'm just sitting there like the cold plunge, like I can't do it. I can't do it. And you know, of course you can, and the relief comes and you're so proud of yourself and it's like that, but it's emotional and it's a lot bigger deal than going in freezing cold water. Right. Oh man. I mean, some of the things you're saying right now, really, I can connect with, especially the tattoo. I remember when I got the word forgiven tatted on my back, this was 2013, I want to say. And this was definitely a point in time, probably four years before I could actually forgive myself or actually felt forgiven by God. And so just that going in there and knowing that, but in a way that's actually speaking something into existence, 
even at the time we didn't necessarily have the the courage or have that ability to forgive ourselves, but we were speaking that into existence and there was something within us spiritually that was telling us it was possible. And uh, it just lit, just lit me up, you know, maybe sit up straight in my chair. And uh, so weird. Cause I hadn't really thought about that in so long and I hadn't articulated it like that really ever. And I wonder how many people's tattoos are that, you know, cause it's right. like a manifestation and it's visualization. I mean, of course yours was on your back, so you couldn't see it. And mine was on my shoulder, so I couldn't really see it either, but so intense. Yeah. I, I think real quick, a tattoo story for me, which breaking mine down. So the first one was a cross and then it said love over it. But then the second one, I was, I remember being high on Xanax, alcohol, weed, going into this and I wanted to get my own initials. And I did, I got it right. And I thought that's what was cool, but that was selfishness and self-centeredness at its finest, like right in the middle of my addiction, actually thinking that my initials was something cool. Now it's like covered up with a Buddha's head, which feels way more appropriate than my own initials. So I just needed to chime in and share my tattoo story. That's really awesome and narcissistic. I love it. I love it. (laughs) I was a lost soul. (laughs) I get it. I get it. You know, what's funny is, so I get into rehab and everybody's like tatted up like crazy. And and they're like, when'd you get your tattoos? I'm like, 16, 17, you know, and I was too embarrassed to say like, oh, three weeks ago, a month ago. And I immediately got them removed when I got sober. That was one of the first things I did is I went and did the laser and God, that hurts. Hmm. Yeah. Well, speaking of you getting sober, uh, take us through what the beginning stages of your transformation looked like, you know, where we get caught up in, you know, where we're at and how we're going to get out, but you were able to find a way out. What are those beginning stages look like? What were some of the small victories that you saw that gave you hope to keep going forward? Well, I think the the biggest one being when that sort of idea came that I could do this, the week between that idea and going to rehab that I didn't change my mind. I mean, talk about a victory. And then being willing to be there and listen and, you know, see the love. I was one of these people who loved rehab and loved early sobriety. And I had been so isolated. And and so suddenly I'm around people. I'm such a people person and I'm around people and they're talking about having the same problem I had. And so that was victory. Number one was rehab. And I I don't know where you guys stand on the 12 step thing, but victory number two was being willing to do that because I was terrified of that. And I'd been around it and I hated it because obviously you hate it when you're an active addict. It's like the worst place on earth and being willing to walk in there. And then once there, I did have a slip November 19th of 2000. News number 18. So I was sober from May 2nd is when I went to rehab 2000. And then I was six and a half months ish. And then I went out for a night and being willing to come back the next day, that didn't feel like a a big, I mean, obviously it was a big victory, but I already knew how good this sobriety thing was. But the big thing then was my willingness to make friends because sobriety really brought me back to like, kindergarten. It made everything I knew how to do feel like I didn't know how to do it anymore. And I had to do it for real. And so all those years from like the time of 16 on 
when I didn't have to deal with, oh, it's scary to make friends. Oh, it's scary to put myself out there. I didn't know. And so I just remember the the willingness to turn to the girl next to me. Because when I first went to AA and, and rehab, I was just like flirting and getting attention and not talking to the women and really getting, as my sponsor told me, I got to make female friends and to acknowledge, oh, I'm terrified to do that really? And to turn to the girl next to me, this girl, Allison, and she just asked me to speak in a meeting yesterday. So that's kind of funny. And her smiling at me and inviting me out with her friends, like it, it made all the difference in the world. So I, those are the, the victories that, that stick out. Small yeah. ones. Yeah. They, um, lay, they lay the foundation for the big ones, you know, getting those, laying that foundation for yourself was, gave you the ability to find your purpose and find your light in the world. I'm sure you can look back on those times now that you're an eight-time best-selling author and being of service with your podcast, teaching people how to write their own books and, and things of that nature, like looking back on those times and saying, okay, like those things helped me build, you know, from the ground up. And uh, why don't you tell us about how you got into writing and your journey through that into becoming an author and then also wanting to teach people how to write their own books. Okay, I should clarify one of my books, I've written eight books, but only one was a New York Times bestseller. And I, people make that mistake all the time and half the time I don't correct them because it sounds better, right? But so yeah, so writing is all I ever knew how to do. It's all I ever wanted to do. I majored in creative writing. I you know, worked at magazines for 15 years, bouncing from magazine to magazine and then freelance writing for everywhere from the New York Times to the LA Times. You know, you read the bio, a lot of places. And and then I wrote my first book when I was about four years sober and, and went through this maze of traditional publishing. I consecutively sold six books to major publisher o- over a 10-year period. And I wrote those, I got advances and I wrote those books. And, and while it was a dream come true, it was also totally heartbreaking business. And it also really broke when the economy crashed, you know, and I was living in New York and my advances dwindled from $50,000 to $2,000 and I couldn't make a living and I didn't know how to do anything else. And so what I ended up doing is starting this publishing company where we help, I have a team that writes and publishes books for entrepreneurs primarily, but we do a ton of recovery memoirs because I sort of accidentally became this recovery advocate because my first book was about addiction and then I had a podcast and then I worked at this website, The Fix, and then I started a website that I sold to The Fix. And so I was out there being this recovery advocate before people were really doing that. And so a lot of, at least half of our books are addiction and recovery memoirs. But my thing was I, I went through traditional publishing and I felt so abandoned and so on my own. And so, you know, the reason I started this company is that we can make it so that people don't feel that way. So we can bring in clients and they pay us. It's the opposite of the way traditional publishing works. They pay us. We do everything and they keep the proceeds and we just do all the the heavy lifting. And it's amazing. It's amazing on two levels because it's like, it's amazing to help somebody share their story of recovery. You guys know that as well as anybody, because not only does it bring such personal freedom, but then, you know, the people obviously that hear it and it helps. And over the years, I've had tons of people come to me and be like, listen, I used to have a recovery podcast. I listened to your podcast. I read your book. I'm sober because of it. And so to, for me to be able to pass that torch to other people so that people come to them. But it's also really important for business. I think that all entrepreneurs need a book and everybody's got a book in them. Not everybody should be writing that book. And so we get to 
use our special skills to do that for people and help them advance their careers. You know? That's beautiful. It's And it sounds like what's really cool about how you've shaped your life and in a sense turned your pain into purpose, but also from a service standpoint, I'm sure you're doing plenty one-on-one stuff, working with people, helping them get sober in your sober circle, but you're also getting to serve and getting to help every single day. And I feel like that's the great life's great hack, right? Just be of service. If you're in a funk or in self-pity, just go help somebody. Um, one of the mantras I tried to remind myself at night, the question of what did I do today that made me happy that wasn't about me? Like, like just serve, like, and it's, I, I look at the selfishness and self-centeredness in my four-step and how it was screaming it at me. I remember doing the work and having this pounding headache because it was all just selfishness and self-centeredness. And what a blessing that the addiction, alcoholism actually streamlines us into this newfound way of life and it's freedom because it's helping others and it's getting out of our own way where there's a lot of other addictions out there that it's, it's a slow death. Instead of this one just moved us right into our bottoms where we could really wake up or be forced to wake up or be willing enough to. Yeah, I know. I know. And it's like the people, I I, I think it's harder for the high bottom people because it's not such a quick road. I couldn't, I've never been able to be like, huh, I wonder if I'm not an addict because my behavior was very clear and I was doing Coke every day. But I will say, yes, the service thing, I, I definitely could stand to be of, of more service. You know, it, frankly, my business is, is really successful. We charge a lot of money. That's not service. The service, if I do anything in my career that service is, I do have a podcast where I give out like all my best tips about writing and launching books. And I don't make any money from that. And, and I really do enjoy doing that. But yeah, I was just talking to my sponsor this morning about the big moment because I kind of had a rough week was talking to my sponsee this week. I never think that's going to be the thing, but it's the thing that works. Why do you feel like that's the thing or community or connection? I know our mutual friend, Joe Polish would say the opposite of addiction is connection. He's always constantly saying that. I know it's maybe not his quote, but he's, I've heard him say it many times. And, but like, why for you, or why do you think that is the foundation or one of the cornerstones of living a, a, a sober life? Well, I think it's human beings are meant to connect. And I think one of the tragedies of addiction and alcoholism is that it makes us isolated. Even when we're around people, we're just so in our heads and you can't connect with somebody in any kind of a real way when you're drinking um, or doing drugs. And so I think that we're all seeking community and there are all these factions of recovery, you know, and there's people who think AA is terrible and there's people who think you have to do yoga to get sober and there's people who think you got to go do ayahuasca or whatever it is. But the commonality is community. Everybody agrees. Nobody says it's terrible to have a community when you get sober. Nobody says that. And, you know, cause it's like, I think we're people who crave human interaction more than other people. Our need for that is greater. I mean, frankly, I think alcoholics need for everything is greater than that's what differentiates us. That's sort of what caused the problem. But yeah, I think that that's what we're all seeking. And it's sad that it takes us getting totally isolated, or maybe it's happy that it takes us doing that to realize that how important that is. 
What would you say, what would you think is like one of the more common misconceptions about alcoholism or addiction? Oh my God, how there's just so many. I mean, that it's about how much you drink and not about your relationship with drinking. You know, I will never forget one of my early speakers I ever had talked about how her nephew went out and got wasted. And she said to him, oh my God, are you full of shame and remorse? And he's like, no, I had a great time. And that she knew he was not an alcoholic at that point. There are plenty of people, I'm sure, who drink more than alcoholics, than someone who's an alcoholic. They don't have the same relationship. It doesn't cause the self-destruction. And self-destruction can look all kinds of ways. It can be entirely internal. So I think that's the main one. I think the, the second biggest one is that people think we have willpower who people who are sober. And to me, it has nothing to do with willpower. It has only to do with the fact that I don't want to do that. Life would be very different if I did want to drink and use it. And I understand that's not the case for everyone, that some people really do struggle with wanting that. It's not my experience. And, and it's not the experience of most sober people that I know. It's that, you know, really is one of those, like I was struck sober, the desire went away and has rarely come back. It has periodically, but very rarely. And I think it's like, we're judging that we're cops or, you know, that we're like looking and trying to like trap everybody and think that they're alcoholic and all of these things. Like when really, I don't care. The longer I'm sober, I don't even notice. I'll be talking to somebody and they're like, oh, they're being weird. And someone else will mention, oh yeah, they're wasted. They are? Really? Like I just, so I think those are the three main things. Great, great, uh, great breakdown. I'm, I'm just, Every time we have a guest on this podcast, I feel like it's there's so much wisdom taken in and we get to learn. We get to learn about amazing human beings like yourself. So it just brings a lot of gratitude in in for me. But what are you grateful for today? Well, on my gratitude list last night, because you know, I occasionally do those. I have so much to be grateful for. You know, I have a wonderful relationship. I have a boyfriend of past two and a half years, which, you know, I got to tell you, that was not something in my longest relationship before that was less than a year. Uh, it took a really long time to be able to do that. And I said recently to a friend, I think people like me are undateable. We are undateable. I kept trying to date people like me. They were undateable. I am because of all the work that I've done. But, you know, I always wanted these big personalities and that came with a lot of narcissism and a lot of charm and a lot of good and bad. And that always devastated me, those people in the end. So I'm so grateful, not just for my boyfriend, but that I'm able to be a good girlfriend. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful for my business. Like I said, I struggled financially for so long that I didn't even know it was a struggle. I knew I was struggling in my relationships. With finances, I just assumed I'd never make money. Like I, writers, you know, that like I was going to tap out at, at what I was making. And it was meeting Joe Polish that changed everything for me. I mean, I was trying to make the transition and I just couldn't figure it out. And I met Joe and it wasn't immediate, but it, within a few years of his influence and being in his community, my business may make seven figures this year. I'm not entirely sure, but that's insane. And, you know, I bought a house a year and a half ago. Like, and so I, I am incredibly grateful every day for that and sort of in shock. 
I'm grateful for my sobriety, but it's funny how the longer you're sober, you kind of forget that. And I always say, it's like, if we were going to be aware of that all the time, we would all walk around being like, it's a miracle. We'd be the most annoying, crazy people. It's a miracle every day an alcoholic doesn't drink, but I'm not so conscious of that. And I'm grateful for my friendships and my relationships. I wasn't just not able to have a boyfriend. I was not able to be a good friend and be a sane person. And I'm just great, just so grateful that it evened out and I can. Gratitude is so key. I know uh, when I'm grateful, I always find myself reflecting, looking back to you know, my younger self from wondering, like, you know, wishing I could tell them something. And, you know, we like to do that here on this podcast. And if I could ask you if you had one tweet, one quote that you could say to the younger Anna David who was struggling, who was lost, who was trying to figure things out, what would you say to her? Well, she wouldn't listen anyway, but I will tell you that my sponsor said something to me this morning that I'm going to put that on my wall. And I was literally saying it when I couldn't get my mic to work. I said it out loud because I was getting super frustrated and it is don't try harder, resist less. Wait, I think I'm screwing it up, but it's like surrender more. It's just basically stop fighting. The fighting is making you so frustrated, which is in contributing to all your character defects, like your self-pity and your anger and your punishing desires and all of those things. And so just surrender and feel the relief. But I also have all these quotes that I love, like that this one, this Rumi quote, live life like it's rigged in your favor. That's a great one. David Hawkins has this quote, we get what we want when we stop insisting on it, which is also really about surrender. So I, again, I wouldn't have listened to such platitudes when I was younger, but you know, I probably would have said like, stop being so scared. It's not going to work out. It's all going to work out, you know? Right. And there's so many people that have been in that similar situation and it's, they know what's holding them back, but they think what they should do is try hard and grind and that somehow, some way that they'll figure it out on their own, like they're supposed to figure it out on their own. But, you know, the key to that is surrendering. Surrender to win. The less area that you occupy, I realize the more room God had to work. And so that. would you have anything that you would say to somebody that is like, they know what's holding them back, but they don't know necessarily what to do next? Well, I would say that God speaks through other people. And if you're being nudged in a direction, listen to that, no matter what your preconceived notions are. Because one of the great shocks to me when I got sober was that I could feel very strongly about something and maybe the next day feel entirely different. That my feelings and my thoughts were not necessarily sane or accurate. And so even if something didn't feel possible, like getting sober, it just follow that silent nudge and just see what happens. I love your nugget on God speaks through the mouths of other people, because that is when I remember lying in treatment, trying to get sober on my own so many times and finally just being beat down so bad, lying in bed in the middle of the day, first day in treatment, I'm saying, God, just tell me what I need to do to get it right this time. Mm. And so I just kind of waited around to hear something. And every night at 7 p.m., Two people would come in and bring in a meeting, a 12-step meeting to the recovery center. And very first night, it was a Pills Anonymous meeting and two guys came in and they started saying things like, 
go to meetings, get a sponsor, work the steps with that sponsor. Now, I'd been going to meetings for years before that, but never heard a thing. And so I asked for it and I heard it. And I genuinely think I could have left after day one and I knew what to do. Like I had work to do and had therapy and had my own stuff I had to work on. But when you said that, it just brought me back to that, that yes, God speaks through the mouths of other people. And what happens if we're not present, like life unfolds in moments, right? It's moment to moment. And if we're not present for those moments, we end up missing out on what's most valuable in our lives. And that is God speaking through the mouths of other people. If we're somewhere else, we can't hear it. It's powerful stuff. Yeah, last question for you. So we always end by giving a comeback story shout out. So who would be like that one person that maybe throughout your life that you just want to give some love to? That is a great question. And I've thought about this before. I guess my mom, who I have not consistently always given love to and struggled with in many, many ways. But that is, that's a good example of surrender, of stopping trying to decide how I think she should behave and just accepting her as she is, because that's when you can see how much you love somebody. So let's give her a shout out. Shout out, mom. Mom. Hey, well, we just want to thank you. I want to personally acknowledge you for, for how you show up in the world and carrying the message of recovery and helping others launch their own books. It's truly a blessing. And I feel like just the connection with Joe and Joe's circle, and he's connected us with so many people. In fact, your book, The Miracle uh, Morning of Addiction Recovery was a gift that I received from Joe. Uh, one. So I'm just I grateful to now have you in our lives and for you making the space to come on. And I will. The only thing I want to add, since this is a podcast, is I do have a podcast called Launch Your Book, which anybody who has a comeback story should be sharing their story. And it's very digestible content. It's usually just 10 minute episodes where I sort of break these things down. So people should check that out. Yeah, definitely go check out Launch Your Book. Uh, You definitely own probably one of the best book titles I've ever heard uh, in my life. By some miracle, I made it out of there alive. And um thankful that you made out of your situation alive. Not only that, but you're out here letting your light truly shine for the world to see. So thank you for your resiliency and thankful to you for telling your comeback story here today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. I, I appreciate you and I appreciate you having me on here. And we'll just end with a little accountability saying that, you know, comeback stories will be a book and we're definitely going to need your help putting it out there. So we'll leave it at that. Yeah, I think there are so many podcasts that should be converted into books because you already got the content. Okay. Now we got the help. All right, we'll let you go. Thanks again, Anna, for jumping on with us. Thank you. Thanks, guys. I'll talk to you soon. Uh, Take care. Staying true till I'm six down. It might take a little bit, but every king's gonna get crowned. 